He pointed out last week what would be better called Paul's third letter to the church at Corinth. And just a bit of background, okay? Some, some leaders have entered the church in Corinth, and it seems like they are trying to turn the people in the church against Paul. Okay, so Paul has to defend himself. But if you've ever had to do that, or if you've ever tried to do that, to defend yourself against accusations, it's not easy, is it? Because it can rapidly sound like you think that you're immune to criticism, or it can sound like you're proud. But is that a problem? I mean, given the existence of pride marches and the existence of social media, to be proud or to promote yourself are almost considered virtues at the moment, aren't they? In the 1830s, after visiting America, the French philosopher Alexis de Tocqueville, which I've almost certainly pronounced incorrectly, he wrote, each citizen is habitually engaged in contemplation of a very puny object, namely himself. Okay, that is not a dig at the Americans, because if that was true in 1830s America, it is most definitely true of 21st century West, virtually the entire 21st century West. Okay, studies show that since the 1950s, the incidence of narcissistic personality <laughs> traits has increased in ev every subsequent generation. And a study in 2009 showed that narcissistic personality traits had more than doubled in the previous 10 years. And we just have to look around us. Sadly, we just have to look into our own hearts to recognize that we live in an increasingly self-absorbed culture. Okay, that is, I think, what makes this passage, today's passage, especially relevant. Because it deals with exactly these issues. How do you feel good about yourself? How are you supposed to feel good about yourself? And whose attention are you living for? These issues of self-confidence and self-promotion. First point then, whose glory? Whose glory? Look at verses 12 and 13. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. Okay, so from Ephesus, Paul wrote a letter to the church at Corinth. Okay, that letter has now been lost. And Titus, he was the postman. He took the letter. And it seems like Paul and Titus agreed to meet up afterwards at Troas, probably so that Titus could fill Paul in on how that letter had gone down. But Titus never shows up, and that bothers Paul. My spirit was not at rest. He's disquieted. He's unsettled. Okay, why? Is he just worried that, you know, Titus has got lost en route? That his GPS isn't working? Okay, the answer is no. Okay, 
he is concerned about the state of the church in Corinth. Was Titus delayed because after reading Paul's letter, the church there is now in meltdown? Okay, so despite things going well in Troas, Paul is now unsettled and that unsettledness moves him on and he heads to Macedonia, okay, probably because that is where he and Titus agreed to meet up if Titus couldn't sail from Corinth before the winter weather set in. Okay, it is not Paul's travel arrangements that are interesting here per se. It's his emotional state and how transparent he is about that. Because whether it was politics or business or sport, Corinth, you know, we've seen this before, Corinth was this entrepreneurial, highly competitive culture of pushing yourself forward to get ahead. And to be a leader meant to be dynamic, self-sufficient, superhuman, with a can-do mentality. And in such a culture, Paul's honesty about his emotions, that would not have scored highly on the Corinth Successful Leader Personality Index, would it? Because to admit your emotions like that, that you're troubled, that you're unsettled, is to admit a degree of weakness. It's a display of weakness. And leaders aren't weak. Leaders are strong. Okay, Diane Langberg, a Christian psychologist, says of the narcissist, he has many gifts except the gift of humility. A narcissist can be incredibly gifted. The one area he's not gifted in is humility. And in Corinth, to be humble enough to admit that you might experience emotional turmoil because you care for people, that would do you no favours in the eyes of the world. Okay, so what does Paul do about it? Or, or so, rather, why does Paul do it? Why does, why does Paul admit his emotional turmoil? Well, probably because he is deliberately seeking to undermine Corinthian kind of thinking. Okay, but it's not just Corinth. Okay, think about today. Because in leadership and in life in general, narcissistic or self-promoting traits can be considered strengths, can't they? Because, hey, sometimes they are. Strong self-confidence, clear vision, able to cut through the opposition, a thick skin, doesn't allow emotions to, to enter into decision-making. Those are considered strengths. But here, Paul is saying Christian leadership, in fact, Christian living is not about projecting an image of strength. It is about a humility that realizes you are not self-sufficient. Look at verse 14. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. Okay, now, how would the new leaders in Corinth have presented themselves? Okay, in all likelihood, they'd have been busy promoting themselves. I mean, you can just imagine it, can't you? Let me tell you, church in Corinth, let me tell you about all of these other churches that have been so blessed 
by our ministry. And you know Mr. X? Of course you know him, because he's famous. And, and he happens to be a friend of mine. Well, here is a letter from Mr. X saying, telling you just how much he has been helped and blessed by my ministry. And church, you too can live a life of victory if you just join my parade. Paul is saying, Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, but he is using the image of a Roman triumph when a victorious Roman general, fresh from defeating some enemy, would parade through Rome leading in procession all the defeated prisoners that he's captured. And the whole point of a triumph was to display the power and the glory of the man who has won the battle. Now these other leaders in Corinth are saying, I am that successful leader. Look how great and glorious I am. And they're saying that, they're thinking like that because that was the culture. But Paul is saying, no, my life is not all about me. My life is all about, look how great and glorious Jesus is. He's the victor. In fact, I was his enemy. And he's captured me. He's leading me in his triumphal procession. I don't know if any of you saw it, but I saw an article on the BBC this week entitled The Met Gala. Apparently the Met Gala is some big party in the US somewhere. The Met Gala, 13 of the most eye-catching looks. And this article showed the, um, the pictures of various celebrities, the vast majority of whom I had never heard of, I have to admit. This, these celebrities and the dresses that they had worn. Okay, but it was that word eye-catching that caught my eye, because that was why they had dressed the way they had. They wanted people to look at them. Okay, so whether it was Corinth or today, culture can encourage a, look at me, hey, look at me. I want to be the center of attention. And Paul is saying, Christianity, and Christian leadership is very different. It is a look at Christ. He is the only one who deserves the glory kind of mentality. He is the one who has won the battle. He's the one who has triumphed over our enemies of sin and death. And in doing so, he has triumphed over me. I'm his captive. Now, Almost certainly, despite what people may have said to you, okay, you are not a narcissist, almost certainly. But at least some of the time, we do want people's eyes on us, don't we? If, if we're honest. I mean, just sometimes we want some of the attention, just a bit of it. Now, I remember a pastor once saying that he had to repent of wanting, to, wanting God to have almost all the glory, okay? We, we want just a slice of it. We're, we're happy for God to have 95, 98, 99% of it, but just a little slice of glory for me. The problem is, okay, if that kind of thinking gets a hold, that desire for attention can seriously put things out of whack in our lives. 
Maybe you recognise it in your own life, maybe you recognise it in some people that you know, because it can damage our relationships, can't it? And so we need someone other than ourselves to be the object of our glory. Because if it's you, if you're the object of your glory and your boasting, those narcissistic traits are just going to grow. But if you make it another person, you're going to end up idolising them in an unhealthy way, whether it's your husband or your boyfriend or your girlfriend or your kids. Which is why Paul says it's got to be Christ. That's the only way you're going to have a healthy inner life. It's got to be Christ because he is the one who conquers our self-absorbed hearts. Okay, but life and leadership, they're not just about who's getting the glory. It's also about the stories that we tell. Second point then, whose story? Whose glory, whose story? Look at verse 14 again. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. And in a Roman triumph, as the victorious general paraded through the streets, incense would be burned or scattered along the way and the air would be full of the smell of it. You and I, we are always going to be filling the air with something, aren't we? Whether it's at home, or on campus, or at work, or at church, in this procession of life, in our influencing of others, we are always gonna be telling one story or another. And for a leader, That could be the story of how he came from nothing and nowhere to greatness. It can be the story of success. It could be the story that our lifestyles tell our friends, our family, about what what we think is most valuable in life. It could be the story that we project on social media. It's not entirely false, but neither is it entirely true. But what is true is that in a culture that is high on self-absorption and self-promotion, 1st century Corinth, 21st century West, that story will be about me. And of course, if you're a leader, or if you're under the influence of a leader, that can create a false sense of intimacy among those around you, because they begin to think that they know you. But the message that Paul is filling the air with is not about him at all. It's that through us, God spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. That far from this false intimacy that a a self-absorbed leader might offer you, the message that Paul is spreading is of the knowledge of God, that God can be known, that you can enter into a relationship with God where you know that you know him. But in a self-absorbed culture, the idea that there is a God and that God is not you, there is a God who can be known and who knows you, and that the story of life is not about you, it's about him, that kind of a message is going to have a mixed reception, isn't it? Verses 15 and 16. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Now, smells can...
can have strange effects, can't they? Last week in home group, um, we were cooked, Nigel cooked us Japanese golden curry. And soon my wife grew up in Japan. Okay, we walked into Helen's apartment. She smelt it. Sue smelt this Japanese golden curry and she went, whoa, that is just what it used to smell like. And all of these memories came flooding back. Or, another example, Sue owns a single bottle of perfume, okay, which she wears a maximum once a year at special occasions. And I love the smell of this perfume. Okay, I love the smell of it because it just, you know, it's got all these happy memories of dinners out and weddings and, and so on, okay, which is great. Until over the summer when we visited the UK, uh, we went out to dinner with a couple of friends and I went in to hug the woman and she was wearing Sue's perfume. Okay, and it was all I could do not to say, mmm, you smell just like my wife. Okay, but if perfumes are powerful, so are the stories that we tell. And nowhere is that more true than the gospel because it divides people. Or more accurately, the way that people respond to it highlights the division that already exists between those who are being saved and those who are perishing. And to some, the message of the gospel that through Christ you can know God. To some people, that is like the stench of death, Paul says. Now, have you ever come across a, or had to move a dead animal? Maybe you found it in the garden or by the roadside, and it's rotting. Do you remember that smell? The smell of death? The smell of rotting? It can make you gag, can't it? You smell it and you think, Ugh. And for some, Christianity makes them sick, Paul says. Because Christianity says, hey, we're not God. But we are accountable to him for the way that we live and the way we respond to him. And that, Paul says, is the stench of death to death. Because if you are self-absorbed, then the gospel is just about a dead man, Jesus, stopping me living in the way I want to. And if you're self-absorbed, that's like a living death. But for others, the same message is a fragrance of life to life because it's about Jesus risen from the dead, giving me new life in place of death, saving me from the self-absorbed contemplation of something puny, myself, and instead giving me something great, which is the knowledge of God. Okay, but... If in a self-absorbed, self-glorifying culture, being a Christian is going to be objectionable to some people, how can you do it? Verse 16, who is sufficient for these things, Paul says? How do you not compromise on the one hand because of the opposition you're getting? You just make the gospel some kind of sentimental goo. Or if you're getting all of this opposition, how do you not become hard and judge, a hard and judgmental culture warrior on the other Third point, whose approval? Whose glory, whose story, whose approval? I was chatting to a friend recently, he works in HR, 
and we got chatting about some of the motivational letters, those cover letters that we have received over the years from people applying for various jobs. And when I was a doctor, you know, I was having to screen people apply, apply, applying for junior posts, we'd get those cover letters that made claims like, I have personally performed 15 brain transplants. Or we have, um, you know, when we've advertised for youth pastor jobs here, you get those uh, motivational letters that leave you thinking, wow, this must be the Apostle Peter reincarnated. <laughs> you know, he's so gifted. It must be Peter reincarnated and not the 22-year-old straight out of seminary that actually he is. Or have you ever had to write a reference for someone? And you sit there thinking, you know, how good can I legitimately make them seem? And in Corinth, these new leaders are coming and they have got just such letters of approval. And we don't know from whom, okay? And those letters are probably saying stuff like, these guys are great. They've got our stamp of approval. You should follow them. And they were saying, these leaders were saying about themselves, hey, we are up to this task of leadership. We can do this. Who does Paul have to commend him? Who is saying of Paul, this guy is the real deal, follow him? And where does Paul get his can-do from, that sense of can-do from, that sense that he can live the Christian life and spread the Christian message without becoming sentimental or aggressive about it? Okay, where do you get it from? Okay, where, where, whose word of approval do you look for that tells you that you're okay and that you can do this life thing? You see, the temptation of our current culture is that you look to that from yourself and that you tell yourself, I can do this. I can be anything I want to be. I've just got to believe in myself. But what the Bible says is that that self-affirmation, apart from God, thinking that you can do life on your own without reference to God, that is as old and as flawed as humanity itself. Because a serpent came in the garden and whispered, you can do this, you don't need God, you can live life without God. And Adam and Eve believed it, and we have been believing it ever since. It is the desire to escape the fact that we're not self-sufficient, that we are creatures created by a creator and we hunger for his loving word of approval over us. Verse 16 again, who is sufficient for these things? And Paul responds, verse 17, for we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as, men, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. And that word peddler, or in, in Jacqueline's translation, huckster, okay, that was used for a person who watered down wine, watered down the wine and then sold it off as if it was the real thing. And Paul says, we don't do that with the message of the gospel. Okay, we don't adulterate it. We don't make it softer and more sentimental but neither do we make it judgmental in a wrong kind of way. We are men of integrity. And in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Okay, get that. Paul knew that whatever he said or did, how he led or how he lived, was in the sight of God. 
you know, if you are always living in the sight of others and you're looking for their commendation, man, that can be exhausting, can't it? And if you are living out of self-approval only and you tell yourself, you know, I can do this, what do you do when the day comes when you can't do it? No matter what you tell yourself, okay, that can be destroying. But when you live knowing that you are seen by God, that he sees you and that you are in Christ and he sees you in Christ, you can relax because you know that you are already approved of because he sees you in him. Okay, but is that just another form of self-affirmation? I mean, prove it, Paul. Prove that you have God's approval. Chapter three, verses one and two. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation. In other words, Paul is saying, you are the living proof of God's approval. You're the proof written not on parchment, but on people. Before I came to Corinth, there was no church, and now there is. And that letter of recommendation, verse 2, is written on our hearts to be known and read by all. It's interesting, isn't it? Paul is not presenting himself as some great leader holding everybody at emotional arm's length. These people matter to him. They're written on his heart and their changed lives were open for everyone to see. In 1 Corinthians, Paul wrote to them and said, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. In other words, in this church, there were people who used to be sexually immoral, who worshipped idols, or who were homosexual, or who stole, or who were greedy, or who got drunk, or who fiddled their taxes. But through the transforming power of the gospel, they had been cleansed, and now they were living chaste and sober and honest lives as Christ followers. That is the evidence of God's approval, Paul says. And it is knowing that you already have God's approval in Christ that can give you what you need to do what he calls you to. Last point then, whose confidence, whose glory, whose story, whose approval, whose confidence. Now, if, this, if these leaders in Corinth are breathing Corinthian air, it is no wonder their leadership looks like Corinth, is it? Confident, self-sufficient, self-promoting. You know, there are even some archaeological examples of civil leaders who built buildings or roads in Corinth, stuck plaques on them that read something like, erected by so-and-so, 
at his own expense. I built this and I paid for it and I'm going to let you all use it. In other words, this is how good and generous and wealthy I am. So just like today, this was a culture where you got recognised for your accomplishments. You got your self-worth from what you owned or earned or achieved. That's what gave you your inner confidence. The problem is, it also leaves you fragile, doesn't it? Fragile to failure and fragile to pride, plus fragile in your own self, because there is this growing divide between the image that you present and the reality beneath. But yet again, Paul roots his confidence elsewhere. Verse 4. Such is the confidence we have through Christ toward God. His confidence to live for God's glory and to tell his story doesn't lie in Paul at all. Verse 5. Not that we're sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. You see, you can think that God approves of you because of you, because you're so good at what you do, because you're a good friend or you're a good dad or you're a good mum or you're a good worker or you're a good Christian. And Paul says, my confidence is not based on my performance at all. It's not based on me. It's based on Christ. Apart from him, I'm nothing. My sufficiency, my capability, my being good enough only comes from him. And it does come from him. Verses 5 and 6. It's going well out there, isn't it? (laughs) Verses 5 and 6. But our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. Guys, that is the confidence that comes from the gospel. We are incompetent in ourselves, but in him we are profoundly competent. You see, Paul contrasts the old and the new covenants. One is the letter, the other is the spirit. One is written on tablets of stone, the other is written on the heart. Think that your approval in the eyes of God or others and your inner confidence If you think that that depends on you being good enough, on your moral effort, on you impressing God, old covenant stuff, keeping God's laws, it is like a living death, Paul says, verse 6. The letter kills. It just leaves us knowing we're never good enough. But when you understand the new covenant, the gospel that Christ has lived the perfect life for you and that your approval before God depends on his moral record and that that is counted to you, that God sees you in Christ, that at the cross he has taken away from you every failure and every sin to live up to God's standards, then you know that through Christ you stand approved by God. He sees you. And he loves you. And that is life. Because, verse 6, the Spirit gives life. Because the Spirit takes God's laws and writes them on our hearts. And that means that now, because of Jesus, we want to obey them and we can obey them through the power of the Spirit. Okay, so, understand the gospel. 
and we find ourselves wanting to live for his glory because we realize that Christ really is the greatest, it's not me. And we want to tell his story and spread that message because we realize it really is good news. And we know that we have God's approval, not because of us, but because of Jesus. And that gives us the confidence to lead and to live as Christians. It's a confidence that we all need. Let's pray. Oh,